We have been um, wrestling through the Sermon on the Mount, and it's been a part of this series on uh, the book of Matthew. And just to remind you, because I think it's important, repetition is the key to learning, correct? That Matthew is all about mission and discipleship. If you want to understand the book of Matthew, you need to frame it around those two ideas, that there is a calling that all of us received. Rob just spoke about it a minute ago, that we are all sent. We are sent people. And uh, in our going, the end of Matthew says we are called to make disciples. We are called to teach people and ourselves to observe everything that God has commanded. And then the promise with that is that God will be with us to the very end of the age. That He will be with us in our going. He will be with us as we're sent out. He will be with us as we're making disciples. But all of the teachings in Matthew, as well as then the parables, the miracles, the stories, all of that frames this picture around what does it really mean to make disciples? What does it look like to do that? And Matthew is kind of instructing or teaching us this. And we have been uh, looking for a while here at kingdom ethics. How do we live well within the kingdom of God? And uh, focused specifically on the Sermon on the Mount. And today, we are going to look at the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. And uh, we're just going to wrap up some of Jesus' major teaching in this book. It's interesting, I was reading the message And uh, this is how it wraps up the very ending of the Sermon on the Mount. It says this, When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he, Jesus, was living everything he was saying. Quite a contrast to their religion teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. I mean, I was talking with a friend just the other day. The Sermon on the Mount has been so full of amazing truth that I I started reflecting that if any of us gave a sermon on just like one part of it, we'd feel like it might have been the best sermon we've ever preached. And yet, Jesus stacks truth on top of truth on top of truth and then comes to this conclusion and people were in awe. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught unlike in any other teacher. And we get to this, and today we're going to take a little bit different approach. We're not going to go just verse by verse through the entire conclusion, but instead I I want to highlight four conclusions that I've come to in light of the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so let's read it. In uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, we're going to read through verse 23. It says this, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or frigs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do mighty 
many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a pretty sobering passage. It's one that uh, is filled with quite a few ideas. But I just want to highlight four conclusions that I think stand out to me in this particular text. The first one is this, that kingdom people are among the minority. Kingdom people are among the minority. What I mean by that is true discipleship, truly following Jesus, is a minority position. It says that few are willing really to embrace it. Few are really willing to pursue the narrow path. You could speculate as to why. I mean, Jesus says, first of all, it's narrow, it's hard, it's difficult. I think we could add to that that... If you look at the teachings of Jesus throughout not just the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout the Gospels, you will recognize that he says and that it requires complete devotion. To follow him is to leave everything else behind and pursue him. There's complete devotion. I think there's also a sense that it is countercultural. If you look at the world at large, we're swimming upstream. For all of these reasons and more, we could probably say that Jesus is communicating that Kingdom people are among the minority. It's the way it is. Now, the Greek word that Jesus uses in this particular passage, the word for narrow, really uh, communicates that the road is narrow and troublesome. Narrow and troublesome. Now, it's not troublesome in the sense that we might consider it to be troublesome where uh, we think the road has like potholes or debris or it was, it's really like uphill and steep and difficult. I was writing on a road in Africa this past summer. And I mean, it's like every like 30 seconds, your car would disappear into a hole and then come back out on the other side. I mean, it, it's not, that's not what he's describing, where it's just, just this crazy terrain. Instead, the, the word is really a meaning a road that is too narrow, that is incredibly narrow. That it, if you picture a road that just, it's kind of like drop-offs on both sides, really narrow, very small. That's what he's communicating. And he's saying that basically if the implication in the Greek would be that it's so narrow that when you walk on it, it says if you're climbing on top of each other to go the direction you're headed. That there's like jostling and bumping and banging up against one another, and it's just a difficult, treacherous way. When I, when I think of the word picture... This might sound odd to you, but I think of the Spokane Elementary Band and Strings concert. How many of you have been to the Spokane Elementary Band and Strings concert? It, like two of you, three of you, okay. Uh, you need to go. I mean, it is, it is awesome. And I'm not joking. My daughter picked up a trombone this last year. That's why we went. And um, it's a, what amazed me about it is if you would hear what came down the hallway at our house... You would think this will be probably one of the worst concerts ever. Not because my daughter is like a horrible musician or anything, but she had just picked up the trombone. She had to play it because nobody else wanted it, and she was like last in line. So they're like, hey, how about this one? All right. So she takes it, and she just wasn't at that point yet really excited about the trombone. So anyhow, we go to this concert, and I was amazed because I walk into the Spokane Arena, and the entire floor is filled with hundreds 
of kids just that have all these band instruments, all these strings. I mean, it just spectacular. And then they somehow took all of these horrible sounds and combined them to some melodic, beautiful music. I mean, it was incredible. I was really shocked. But I, I watched the event, and at the end, they have this whole system of how they let people leave. So if you haven't been there before, uh, you don't quite get it, but they try to send people out in waves because it can get pretty claustrophobic in the hallways. And they got to this point where they had sent, we were dismissed. And so my wife and I and the kids, we came out of one of the exits and we knew we needed to turn to the right. My son, who is like a go-getter, and he'll just like lead the way regardless of whether he knows where he's going. He's like, I'm heading out. And he got to the exit and he turned to the left down the hallway. We needed to go to the right. Well, we finally like look around, make sure we have everybody realize we don't. Look up, he had taken off to the left. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go get him. You head this way. So I start taking off. And at that very moment, it was like the rest of everybody who had a kid in elementary school in Spokane got dismissed down that hallway. And it was just this mass of people just coming directly at me. And so I'm like, every two steps, like, excuse me, pardon me, sorry, excuse me. And I'm like catching elbows and just, I'm going completely against the grain, right down the middle of the hallway, and it's just this mass of people. There were periods of time where I just like couldn't move for 30 seconds, and I'm like just feeling claustrophobic. Every now and then I'd see my son's head bob up above the crowd, and then he'd dart off again. And it took me about 20 minutes to go track him down because I was fighting the current the whole way. The road was narrow. The path had too many people on it. The path was so narrow for the amount of people that it was as if I'm climbing my way from one side to the other. And the picture that Jesus is describing is that the road is so narrow that it's difficult, it's troublesome, it's hard, that very few choose it. That's why kingdom people are among the minority. Because it is against the grain of culture. It's against the majority opinion. It is against the normal thing where you have to actually give up your life. That's what they're, he's asking. He's saying, listen, this is a commitment for all of you. And discipleship, at least in the way of Jesus is something that I believe causes people to second-guess whether they really want to be a disciple. Discipleship in the way of Jesus causes people to second-guess, do I really want to commit all of my life to this? Do I want to follow? Bonhoeffer made this statement, The disciple simply burns his boats and goes ahead. The old life is left behind and completely surrendered. The disciple is dragged out of his relative security and into a life of absolute insecurity. From a life that is observable and calculable to a life where everything is unobservable and fortuitous. Out of a realm of the finite and into a realm of infinite possibilities. Discipleship means Jesus Christ and him alone. It cannot consist of anything more than that. This morning, as I walk through these conclusions, I want to give you some questions to wrestle with as a group. So as you meet with your group throughout the week, or as you're in accountability groups, 
wrestle with some of these questions. The first one is this. Does your discipleship leave people second-guessing whether they would want to walk the same path? Now, not second-guessing because what we're living is such a watered-down, lukewarm, kind of bogus version of faith that people would go, oh man, I would hate to follow that. No. I'm saying, is your discipleship, does my discipleship leave such a difficult understanding of what it means to sacrifice everything and to follow, that people would second guess whether they would want to really pursue it. Think on that. Talk about it as a group. The second one is this. True discipleship requires action. True discipleship requires action. Jesus is communicating in the Sermon on the Mount about the whole person. He doesn't just focus on the mind. He doesn't just focus on the hands. He doesn't just focus on certain parts of who we are as individuals. But he describes all of us. And he describes us in three primary zones. If you consider what makes up an individual, these are the three zones that Jesus addresses throughout his talk. The first one is the zone of emotions and thoughts. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the first part of it really focuses on the eyes and the heart. The eyes, the heart, the personality, the conscience, the emotions, the intellect, the will. He's going after those things and saying that part of your life must be submitted to Jesus. Then he goes after the zone of speech, the ears, the mouth. That's why you hear Jesus say things like, can praise and cursing come out of the same mouth? Can Is this about communication? It's about listening. It's about the way we relate to one another. It's about judging. It's about all of these things. And he he lists them out in the sermon. And then he gets to this section in the conclusion and he hits the zone of action. It's about the hands and the feet. So he talks about things like doing or acting or behavior or walking or the way. This whole conclusion to the sermon is heavy Heavy on action. It's as if he's saying, all these things that I told you about your life, your inner life, all these things I've told you about your mind and your heart, all these things that I've told you about pursuing me, it all comes down to this. Can you make your actions demonstrate what it is you believe? Can you live it out? Will you live it out? And it's, it's just this whole idea of, listen, you have to do it. You have to follow. It's about obedience. And Jesus would have communicated this, and the Hebrew would have understood it very clearly, because the Hebrews didn't understand it in term, and understand faith or religion in terms of like a set of creeds, a code of conduct, some ideology. Instead, they realized that faith was a journey or a pilgrimage. They always used terms like that it's this path that I have to pursue, it's this way that I'm walking. And so Jesus says things in this conclusion like this. You must enter. Enter. It requires movement. It requires action. It speaks of doing. He talks about the road or the way, this journey, this path. There's an implication that this is a long trek we're on. That there's bearing fruit, which talks about growth and change. That part of your action is seeing your life change as you live it out. And then doing the will of the Father. These are reasons why Jesus communicates that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that none of us come through any other means other than Him. So He's he's trying to communicate this picture that 
The narrow way isn't about doctrinal correctness. It isn't about some cognitive belief. It's really about obedience. It's whether or not we are following Him in obedience. That's why He says, right at the conclusion of this sermon, not everyone who says to me. It's not your verbiage. It's not your words. But it's those who do the will of the Father. Those who live it out. It's not partial obedience, it is obedience. So my question for you and for your group is this. Is your discipleship, or in what ways is your discipleship characterized by action? By obedience? If you look at your group as a whole, how is your group active in its faith? What are you doing to demonstrate this obedience to Jesus in His way, in His teaching? The third conclusion is this. Discipleship is an either-or. Discipleship is an either-or. To define either-or, it's simply this. Strictly a limited choice or division between only two options. The discipleship is an either-or. There's two options. Jesus describes it again and again and again in this final section. He says there's two gates. There's two roads. Two destinations. Two trees. Two claims, two men. It all comes down to two ways. That's it. Just two ways. Now, I'm convinced in our culture, I'm convinced in my own life, I don't like it when I only have two options. I don't know if you're like that at all, but my mom would go like, you can either have this for lunch or that for lunch. And I'd go, what about like this for lunch? What about another option? What about a different way? You know, teachers would communicate something in class and they would say, you know, the, really the opinion is it's either this or this. And I'd go, well, if you look at it a different way, couldn't you say that it might also be this? Isn't there an alternative? Isn't there a third way? Isn't there some other alternative other than just these two options? John Stott said, Everyone, everybody rep- resents being faced with the necessity of a choice. But Jesus will not allow us to escape it. I think we all crave, in some ways, the third way. We crave a third way. I mean, if, I, if Jesus was here, and He is, but if He was literally here and speaking to me and saying, hey Russ, there's a narrow way and there's a broad way, there would be a part of me that would go, what about the medium way? I mean, I know narrow, I know broad, we haven't talked about any other sizes. Do we have a medium way? Is there some other alternative? Or could I like hang out on the broad road for a really long time and end up at the narrow destination. Does that work? Am I allowed to, to create an alternative pathway to this? Because that's what I want. That's what I want to look for. I find that that shows up in life many times for us. Between my, uh, the summer before my junior year in high school and senior year in high school, um, I agreed with my dad to go running all summer in the mornings. My dad's an avid runner and um, just loved going out with a group of guys running. And I knew, because I was a soccer player, that running was, was really beneficial for soccer. And that was, that was it, in my mind. There were really no other benefits at that time for me. I'd play soccer and then I'd run so that I can play better soccer. That was it. And so it, I got up on those mornings, but this is kind of how the routine went. I would, uh, the alarm would go off. I'd kind of hit snooze. My dad would get dressed, he'd come downstairs, he'd say, hey Russ, I'm heading out in like five minutes, ready to go. And I would go, Dad, maybe I'll just 
like sleep in today and tomorrow I'll get up. How about tomorrow? And he goes, come on, let's, let's go, let's get up, let's go. So I'd get up, I'd get dressed, I'd, we'd drive over to the school, we'd meet about 10 guys, it was kind of chilly out, we'd go inside and uh, we'd stretch. We'd be stretching for about five, seven minutes and invariably one of the guys would say, all right, it's time to go, let's, let's head out. And I would, I would always go, I don't, I'm a little tight. Anyone else tight? We should stretch a little longer. I think if we stretch just a little longer, that'll be good. And someone would go, no, let's just get out and start jogging. We'll loosen up as we jog. And I said, okay, jogging's good. That's great. So we'd head out and we'd start to jog. And we'd, you know, be going for a little while. And I just knew there was this point where somebody would say, all right, let's go. Hit it. Let's, I mean, let's, let's go for it. Let's run. And um, anytime they were about to say that, I would like preemptive strike, and I would go, hey, this is a really good pace. I think we need to like stick at this pace a little longer, kind of like it. You guys feeling comfortable? And then they would go, Russ, it's time. Let's go. And then we'd run. But I was always looking for the third way when it came to running. I was always looking for, I mean, is there a shortcut? Can I like only run every like fourth day and get as much benefit as running every day? Or could I like go at a really slow pace and that's going to help me as much as if I really just was killing myself out there. I wanted to find the third way. I wanted the medium way. And I think a lot of times it shows up in our faith as well. Where Jesus says, listen, it's the narrow way or it's the broad way. And we, we shoot for the compromise of the middle. So I, I look to figure out how I can create a middle way and then call it the narrow way. Ever do that? You begin to compromise, and you just go, hey, I think I'm going to create this alternative path. I'll create something somewhere in the middle. And then when people ask me about it, I'll redefine terms and just call it the narrow way. And then I'll feel good because I know I'm on the narrow way when in reality I'm kind of on the middle way. John Stott said, Probably the greatest tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history has been its constant tendency to conform to the prevailing culture instead of developing a Christian counterculture. We create the middle way. We create a medium path. So this week, discussing groups. In what ways have we begun to redefine the middle way or the narrow way? How have we redefined it? Or in what ways have we sought to create a medium road and started calling it narrow? Do you find that that happens in your life? Do you find that it happens in the life of your group? Do you find that it happens in the life of the church at large? Are we being people who compromise the calling of Jesus? The next way I think it shows up is indifference. Jesus is very clear with his teaching. He says there's a narrow way and a broad way. Much of modern teaching, if you consider it, is uh, very good at presenting truth or presenting ideas in a neutral manner. If you present ideas in a neutral manner, it gives three options. The option, I agree with whoever's teaching, I'm wholeheartedly behind it, I accept what is being said, and I will do what's necessary to live into the reality of that option. The opposing idea is, listen, I don't agree with what is said. I say no to the argument. I don't like it. No. 
So there's the yes, there's the no, and then there's the I'm going to choose to do nothing about what I heard. There's the I'm going to ignore the facts. I'm going to just decide it's good as it is. I'm fine with not leaning toward yes. I'm fine with not leaning toward no. And we've created in many ways in modern culture a false impression that there's a third alternative, and that is indifference. That I can be indifferent to the argument that Jesus gives me option A or B, and I can just choose neither. That I can be indifferent. Listen, if he says narrow and broad, and you don't choose narrow, you've chosen broad. There's not like medium. There's no other alternative. It's narrow or it's broad. We don't like to hear it, but if you're not on the narrow road, you're on the broad road. If you're on any other road other than narrow, it's broad. That's what Jesus is communicating. No other alternatives. I wish there were sometimes. I want to tell people it would be nice if there was, but there aren't. He's very clear. And then he says something that I find kind of disturbing, but it is a true possibility he brings up. And that is this. That there are people, perhaps among us, perhaps among the church at large, that feel with all of their heart maybe, or understand or think that in some way they are on the narrow, when in fact they're on the broad. Jesus makes it very clear in several ways. Whether it's the false teacher, whether it's the person at the end that says, hey, I think I'm on the narrow because I've done da 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 and he says, hey, listen, I didn't, I didn't know you. I was talking with Asher in between services, and he told me that he heard the, a story from a, a pastor who had been pastoring at a church for about 15 years. And there was this member at the church that had been a part of his ministry the whole time, and he came up to him after one Sunday where the preacher said again, hey, there's a narrow way, there's a broad way, a narrow way, broad way. And he said, hey, Pastor, I, I really love, I mean, I love being a part of this community, love the narrow way, broad way, that's really awesome, but you don't talk very much about the, the middle way, the third way. And so, intrigued, the pastor said, well, what's that third way? And he said, well, it's kind of like you're involved in some of the things of the church, you, you, you love people, but you haven't like fully committed like, to the narrow way. Like You're kind of just in between. And the pastor basically almost started crying and said, I'm sorry, there's only two. It's narrow or it's broad. And I wish I could say, that's great, you're in the middle, but I can't. I think sometimes we miss the reality of that. That we can't just choose indifference. So next question is what... To what teachings of Jesus have we, I, you, been showing indifference? Where have we heard the case made by Jesus and said, you know, I'll just stay where I'm at? And then the last conclusion is this. Discipleship involves a relationship. See, the narrow way, the narrow gate, is not just a philosophy, it's not a vague hope, but it is a person. The narrow way is Jesus Christ. That's why he says, I am the way in the Gospel of John. He also says, I am the gate. The very words he uses here, he clearly communicates to us that he 
is those things. That's why he says at the very end, do you know me? I didn't know you. That's why we're not in relationship. I need to know you. I've been doing a a fair bit of research or understanding on the black tradition in the church. Part of why is I want my daughter Evie to kind of grow up with an understanding of uh, her culture and an understanding of what it means to pursue Jesus. And what's interesting about the black tradition in the church is they never make statements of, are you on the narrow or on the broad? Or are you saved or are you not saved? Words that we often use. They come down to one thing, and it is this. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? And that's the final question. And when you hear the teachings of Jesus, you see his conclusion is very clear that it requires action. There's a a simple choice. It's either narrow or broad. And that kingdom people are among the minority. The question becomes then, do you know him? Are you in a relationship with him? Are you pursuing him and what he's called you to?